you'll turn your attention to your bulletin, you will see there the Old Testament responsive reading, and then I will read for us the reading from Revelation chapter 20. Hear the word of the Lord. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues stretch to the earth. And they say, How can God know? Is there any knowledge in the Most High? All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I entered into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell all your works. And now the New Testament reading from Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 15. Again, hear the word of the Lord. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the Word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. 
Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the word of the Lord. If you're visiting this morning... We have been in this chapter, one of the most controversial and studied chapters in all of Scripture. This is the fourth week we have looked uh, in those first verses at the binding of Satan. The next week we looked at the saints in glory. And these, since the ascension, what has happened to these brothers and sisters in Christ who've gone, who have been taken from us. They're home with the Lord. And we had a vision of them in glory. Then uh, we saw that Satan, just before the return of Christ, would be released. And we looked at that last week and the havoc that he would bring and this great and terrible tribulation, a tribulation that would seem to just destroy the church. And then we saw the destruction of Satan. That's what the chapter was really about, was he was dealing with the destruction of Satan. What follows is the judgment of God the great white throne. We'll all witness that one day. Uh, there's so much in these verses. I could preach three or four sermons easily and look at this passage from different angles. 
But as I wrote this message this week, it weighed heavy, heavy upon me that I would be speaking to God's people about this most profoundly serious subject. Thus, this morning, I will stick very close to what I've written. I've tried to be very, very careful, very precise, very accurate. I pray that the Lord will give me and you eyes to see and ears to hear. Let's pray together. Our Father, as your priests, a congregation of priests, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ, the Bednikow family, especially Elizabeth, as you've taken her mother home, for Mike, A.G., for the Clayton family. Bless them, Father. Bring comfort that is beyond imagination. We pray for Phil Halley. Thank you for what you're doing with him physically. We pray that he would recover motion in both arms, both legs. Oh, Father, bring healing to him. We pray for our Sunday school, Father, that you will provide the teachers. You know right now the teachers that you are calling to teach, the helpers you're calling to help. Thank you for what Hallie and her team are doing. Give them wisdom. And now as we open your word to this, Father, this passage, that on one hand is so terrifying, and on the other, so comforting. Help us, Father. John Sartell cannot teach so that it will make any difference in our lives. So we pray that once more this morning we will hear your voice in our hearts in the power of the Holy Spirit. For the glory is yours, Father. The honor is yours. And we bow before you. Amen. What happens when transcendent judgment falls? All through the scriptures, we're taught that history will be consummated by a final judgment that brings a holy and perfect justice to every individual 
every nation, no matter how significant or insignificant that nation or person seems to be. This is not a judgment that is just mentioned in passing in a couple of places in Scripture. It is, it is assumed or plainly set forth from Genesis to Revelation. We should expect it because it's stated by God with great clarity. We should expect it because we have seen God exercise his office as judge of all the earth all through history. In scripture, these judgments with a small j came to the pharaohs of Egypt, the Canaanite city-states. You know the stories. It even came to God's own Israel as they had disobeyed and walked away from him. It came to the Babylonians. It came to the Persians in Scripture. But all of these judgments, whether individual or nationally, are only preludes. They're only warnings of a greater and all-consuming judgment that is coming the small judgment, the small J of judgment came to Lenin in Stalin's reign of terror. It will surely come to China. It will surely come to the decadence that now rules our own culture. But what we read this morning in the closing verses of Revelation 20 is the judgment. It's not a judgment. It is the judgment. It's the judgment with a capital J. There's only one judgment like this. Sometimes it's called the last judgment. And indeed it is. There will not be another. For evil will have completely been annihilated. We have watched the graphic scenes of the culture of the Antichrist being destroyed. We've watched the destruction of the worldwide secular city of Babylon. We've watched Jesus slay the Antichrist and the prophet of the Antichrist with the breath of his mouth. And last week, we watched Jesus destroy Satan himself with his forces with fire from glory. The unholy trinity has been eradicated in this part of Revelation. But there's one final step to the eradication of evil. Just before Jesus returned, Satan was unleashed from the restraints that God had placed upon him. And the world followed after Satan. The world thronged to him. We watched it last week. God was demonstrating one more time, not just the evil power of Satan. More than that, he was demonstrating one more time the evil that resided in the hearts of men, that the world would throng to Satan. 
God had not brought a final reckoning to that evil. That evil that is native to mankind. The secular city is gone. The Antichrist and his prophet are gone. Satan is gone. But there's not been a reckoning with the evil that is in the history and heart of mankind. In this final scene, in this final vision, what does John see? We read this. Then I saw a great white throne. And he saw all mankind, all mankind, with all of its evil standing before that throne. This is not just a throne denoting God's sovereignty. It's a throne of judgment, the last judgment. There's not another throne of judgment. There will never be another courtroom like this. This last wisp of evil will be destroyed with this judgment. There's only been one time that a judgment like this has been unleashed. Yes, one time previous to this, it was unleashed. We'll come to that later. But after what we read in this passage, this judgment... A judgment like this will never be seen again because evil will have been eradicated. Let's clear two great misconceptions as we come to this passage. Some say, and you've heard it, this is a teaching of the Old Testament God. The Old Testament is full of wrath and judgment of God. But we're New Testament people. And the New Testament is full of the love of God. People who say that are grossly ignorant of the Old Testament. The Old Testament people is full of the love of God. It's full of the mercy of God. It's full of the grace of God. Likewise, people that say things like that are also grossly ignorant of the New Testament. The New Testament is full of the justice of God. It's full of the wrath of God. It's full of the judgment of God. Well, you might pull back then and say, well, maybe John's right, but Jesus only spoke of the love of God, and I'm a Jesus person. If that's what you're saying, go home. And get reacquainted with Jesus. This afternoon, read the Gospels. Jesus spoke, listen to me, Jesus spoke more of the judgment of God, this final judgment, he spoke more of it than any person in all of Scripture, any book of all of Scripture. When you say things like that, stop it. You're lying. He, speak, he spoke more about hell than anyone else in Scripture. Today, after 54 years of ministry, I'm amazed. I'm astounded and shocked at the complete lack of teaching on this subject from the evangelical pulpits of our land. 
The laughter of the secular culture at the idea of the supernatural history consummating judgment has intimidated our pulpits. We're being intimidated by the laughter and scorn of the world. They scorn, they laugh at the idea of hell. They even laugh at the idea of heaven. When I was a student in a Presbyterian seminary, a very erudite homiletics professor, in fact, he had come there from Memphis. He laughed in front of our class, our homiletics class, at my belief in the reality of hell and the reality of God's judgment. It was an effort in intimidation aimed not just at me, but the entire class. That's where our culture is today. Do you not hear the laughter? I'm shocked at how the modern evangelical church claims such affinity to the teaching of Jesus, but there's a deafening silence about what Jesus said concerning the final judgment in hell. And I would remind you, That that's not mercy. Mercy warns. Grace warns. Why is this judgment in scripture? Why is it an absolute truth? Why is it necessary? Four words. The holiness of God. That's why this judgment is necessary. What characteristic of God is mentioned more in Scripture than any other characteristic? I know many of you know. You're saying it right now. The holiness of God. The Scripture speaks more of God's holiness than any other characteristic. We opened our worship by singing of this characteristic this morning. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. The Bible speaks more of the holiness of God than it does of the love of God. The recorded songs of the angels is not love, love, love. The song of the angels recorded in Scripture is holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Quite three times. There's a holy father, a holy son. And a Holy Spirit. The holiness of God. You say, John, what's that mean? Well, I will tell you. The holiness of God in Scripture is defined in two ways. It refers to a majestic transcendence. The transcendence of the greatest king of all. It's the glory of his majesty. It's above all other majesties. The, the Hebrew word holy is kodosh. It means cut, split. It's cut off. It's made separate. The holiness of God separates him from all else. No one can compare to him in his holiness, in his majesty, in his glory, in his sovereignty. Secondly, the holiness of God in scripture also refers to his ethical and moral holiness his purity his moral holiness just like his majestic 
His majestic holiness, the majesty of the king, is transcendent above all others. His moral transcendency, his moral holiness is transcendent. It's incomparable. It does not tolerate sin. It does not tolerate the slightest, slightest evil. You know the passage. Some of you were saying, were thinking in your head, Isaiah 6 comes to mind. Well, it came to my mind, and we've looked at it so many times, and we look at it again. Look at Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. This is God on his throne, high and lifted up. What are you saying? He's transcendent. And the, just the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations, get this scene, the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me. I am lost for I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. Now stop. The angels, what were they? Did they have a book and said, okay, when he does this, we're supposed to do this. When he does this, we're supposed to. No. They don't have a book of protocol. They can't do anything else but respond to his majestic holiness. Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. They weren't saying, we're sinners. They weren't crying out, woe is me. They were just responding to his great majestic holiness. That's what they're doing in glory right now. But how did Isaiah respond? Woe is me, he responded, I'm sure, to the majestic holiness. But it was his moral holiness. He felt the white, hot heat of the intolerance of a holy God, the intolerance to sin. Woe is me, I'm undone. The final judgment is a necessity and reality because God is transcendently holy. He does not tolerate the slightest evil. Let's read it. Verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne in him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. This was not a throne merely signifying the reign of God. This throne was about judgment. 
Not about vengeance. It was about a reckoning. It was about a righteous accounting. We, we've talked about this previously. But we must ask our culture why they desire and want a righteous justice system ruling fairly in our county, our cities, our states and country. And yet, at the same time, we dismiss God executing judgment in his creation. We say, no, 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 God doesn't do that. Man can create justice in our cities and counties and states and nations, but modernity says God can't have justice in his universe. The Bible teaches that man's sense of justice comes directly from God and his word. Where do we get our sense of justice those of you in our young adult study, you know, we talked about who we are. We're made in God's image, and God was spiritual. God was personal, rational, and moral. And he made man spiritual, and he made man personal and rational and moral. The whole idea of justice began with God, not with man. In Psalm 73, which we read this morning, David was searching for justice. He was looking for it. He saw the evil of this world, and he saw no judgment, no reckoning. He saw evil seemingly escape any kind of reckoning. And he was in despair. There was no justice in God's creation. But then he saw it. He saw it in the sanctuary of God. He saw it in God's word. And he saw it as God dealt with families and cities and nations in judgment with a small J. He said, there is justice. And there's a God who brings justice. So this justice is a necessity and a reality because God the creator is infinitely holy. This justice, John sees In verse 11, is unescapable. What do we read? From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. Like they were criminals fleeing from the court of justice. We've seen that in our day. So people will seek to hide from this justice, but it's unescapable. The scope of this justice is all-encompassing. Look at verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were, you see how all-encompassing it is? No one can escape this. The great and the small were standing there before the throne of judgment. The king and the peon. There's no one too huge for this judgment and no one too small. We've seen our own judicial system, in our own judicial system, politicians and the wealth they use their position and wealth to avoid justice, to really look at justice in the courts and just thumb their nose and say, we're above that. We're too powerful. In the final judgment, there will be no one who is above God's law and justice. 
It will not only be for those who are living, but we read that the dead, verse 11, were judged by what was written in the books. And the sea gave up the dead in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead. These people that have been buried at sea, buried in storms, thousands of years ago, they're called to this court. What was the vision saying to John and us? It was shouting to us that the scope of this judgment is encompassing kings and peasants, the living and the dead. Some would say that Hitler managed to escape the humiliation. I've read this history book. That he escaped the humiliation and justice of the Nuremberg trials when he committed suicide. No, he didn't. I would say to them that they will see God's exacting judgment meted out to that very same Hitler. And it won't be in his absence. It will be in his presence. God will raise him just to face that judgment. Paul wrote that the day's already been set for that trial. In Acts 17, 31, it's not on your scripture sheet. We read, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. This justice is a necessity. It's a reality. It's inescapable and all-encompassing. Well, what's the basis of this final judgment? Look at verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were open. And another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books. They were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Each one will be judged by what they had done. These books are a record of the sins of men and women and boys and girls. Their words, their actions. Jesus warned in Luke 12 that the sins we try to hide will be made known. There's not a person in this room. Me, you, Every person here, we've all hidden sins. And what did Jesus say? Look at chapter 12 of Luke, verses 1 through 3. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. They walked around in all their religious dress saying, look how good we are. He says, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you've whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on housetops. And the Pharisees appeared to be uber-righteous. They did not think of themselves as sinners. They hid and covered up their sin. Jesus told the disciples, don't you be like the Pharisees. Every one of their sins will be exposed. The writer of Hebrews says it this way, Hebrews 4.13, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So the basis of the judgment will be the, tra of, will be the transgression of God's law forever recorded in your mind. Yet, as terrible as this final judgment is, Christians, those in Christ, have no need to fear. Look at verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. There was another book present, the book of life. This book does not 
contain words. It doesn't contain deeds about what we did. It's just a list of names. Jesus spoke of this book. It's mentioned several times in Scripture. Jesus spoke of it in Luke 10, 20. Look at this. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. The disciples had returned from successful ministries in local towns, and they were telling Jesus about the miracles that had been performed through them by the power of the Spirit. They'd even cast out demons. And Jesus told them their joy should come not in what they accomplished, not at casting out demons, but their joy should come in that their names are written in heaven. In another place in Revelation, it's called the book of life of the lamb who was slain. It's Jesus' book. There's no need for these to stand in this final court. Now, hang on a second. I want you to understand something. Remember when we had the message. I think this, I know, this passage is primarily showing the judgment of the wicked. Next week, it completely changes. We see the saints in glory again. This is about the wicked. Remember where where is Paul now? Where's the Apostle John now? Where's Stephen? Where's the saints that have gone before us? Where's my father? Where's my mother? Where's my brother? They're home today in glory. They're home today in glory. They're not waiting to see the outcome. They're still to receive a resurrected body, and they will. And we may be standing there watching this. But it will be without any fear of judgment. There's no need for them to stand in this final court. Their sins have already been confessed. Their sins have already been judged. Here we are. Remember I told you that this awful final judgment fell one other place before this the awful final judgment of Revelation 20, 11 through 15 fell in another place. There's another place in Scripture we witness this awful final judgment descending upon a man. It fell on Jesus at Calvary. Our sins, our guilt, and that punishment fell on Christ. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Woe is me! Jesus was covered with our filth, with our sin. There's already been a reckoning for your sin. If you're in Christ, yeah. you want to know why there has to be just? You want to know how holy this God is? When your sin and my sin fell on Jesus, that's God's Son. That's the eternal Son of God. Son of God and Son of Man. The one God had looked at and said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. But when our sin, when sin, when he became guilty, God did not avoid his justice. He didn't say, I can't do this. His justice is so holy that even when the sin was on his own son, 
he sent him to hell. Sometimes we hear folks say, God loves me. God is love, and I just know he loves me. That's why I'm forgiven. Listen to me. The basis of your forgiveness is not the love of God. If God looked at you and said, I love you, so I'll just forget about your sin because of my love. He would be unjust. He would be unholy. He would be a crooked God. The gospel of Jesus Christ, people, is not that God loves us. But these folks will answer, well, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but will be saved. But why did he give his son? If his love alone was enough, if we're saved by his love, why was Jesus necessary? Why must the Son of God become flesh and live this incredibly perfect life and go to Calvary and die an atoning death? Why did Jesus do that? Because God's love alone would not save. We have looked many times and we're at the end. But if you've been asleep so far, wake up. I want you to see one last thing. It may be the most profound statement in all of Scripture. Romans 3.25. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. That's at Calvary. Through the shedding of his blood... To be received by faith in Christ alone, by faith alone. Look at those words. He did this to demonstrate his, and I left it blank. What words did you put in there instantly, right now? What words did you put? Most people would put love. And it certainly says in another place in Romans, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But it doesn't say that here. He did this to demonstrate, and you could write this in, his righteousness, his holiness. Because in forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. In Hebrew, when a Hebrew writer was writing, if he wanted to emphasize something, he didn't have a highlighter, he simply repeated it. So he repeats it. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. So, look at this, so as to be just and the one who justifies. Oh, dear Christian, that's why you will not stand in that final courtroom. Not in the way the wicked will. Jesus stood in that courtroom for you. Those sins are gone. He won't look the other way because you're so good. He's not weighing. He's, here's your sins. And do your good works that way? No. Jesus, here's our sins. And Jesus is on the other side of the scale. He's taken all the sins. If you're not in Christ, 
I, t I assure you, every person in this room is going to be somewhere around that throne. I'm telling you this morning, if you're not a Christian, if you don't know Christ personally, it's not that, I'm not asking if you know about Christ. I'm saying, do you know him? Do you know him? Have you bowed before him in tears and love? Is he the love of your life? You don't have to walk down an aisle. Just bow before you. And confess your sin. Stop trying to hide it. And say, here I am, Jesus, save me. Just save me. Our hymn is most appropriate. Come, behold the wondrous mystery. Let's stand as we sing.
grace, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be inside of us and go with us and abide with us. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.